You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For September 30th, 2020, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Is it possible to decarbonize the economy of the United States and get to net zero emissions by 2050? That's the question that a team of researchers from 15 countries have been trying to answer for the past several years. The work is part of the Deep Decarbonization Pathways Project, which is being conducted under the auspices of the UN Sustainable Development Solutions Network, or SDSN. As Dr. Jeffrey Sachs, the director of the SDSN, explained in episode 129, this modeling work aims to identify how we can decarbonize the United States economy by 2050. In our conversation with Jeff, we focused on why this is such an urgent objective, and we discussed some of the key policy pathways, what Jeff called the pillars of decarbonization, that can help us do it. Today, we're going to take a deep dive into the details of that modeling and look at the specific energy technologies, devices, and grid management strategies that will make it all possible. Not only is it possible to reach net zero emissions by 2050, the researchers found, using a combination of renewable electricity and carbon capture and sequestration technologies, but the cost of the transition will be negligible at less than half of 1% of GDP. And that's under a scenario that assumes we'll have essentially the same demand for energy services that we do today, and that only relies on technologies that are commercial today or that have been demonstrated at a large pilot scale. I think it's an exciting body of work, and it's just being published this year, so this is all hot off the presses material. And I'm particularly pleased that we are able to conduct this interview with one of the key researchers of the modeling team, Jamil Farbs. Jamil is a principal at Evolved Energy Research who has extensive experience in electric portfolio development, utility planning, and wholesale market design. Previously, Jamil worked at the Rocky Mountain Institute, where we worked together for a short while, as well as California Utility PG&E and the consultancy E3. He's a genuine expert in this domain, and I know you will find his insights on the energy transition to be thought-provoking. Then in the news segment, we'll note the demise of the sole carbon capture project on a coal-fired power plant in the U.S. We'll review several new battery storage projects that are vying for the title of the largest storage project in the world. We'll explore why the youngest and most efficient coal-fired power plant in Germany has been offered up for closure, and we'll applaud the formation of a clean energy lobbying group in the U.S. But first, our interview with Jamil Farbs, recorded August 28, 2020. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Jamil, to the Energy Transition Show. Great. Thanks, Chris. So today we're going to talk about a series of papers of which you are a co-author that the UN Sustainable Development Solutions Network, or UNSDSN, has published on low-carbon transition strategies for the United States. We introduced this work in our conversation with Jeffrey Sachs, the director of the SDSN, back in episode 129. And in that conversation, we focused on the why of this work. Why do we need to decarbonize our economy and some of the key policy pathways, what he calls the pillars of decarbonization, that can help us do it. 
Today we're going to talk about the papers themselves. They aim to describe the pathways that the U.S. could follow to achieve carbon neutrality, in other words, net zero emissions by 2050. And they've been published by a team of researchers, including you, at Evolved Energy Research based in San Francisco. If I have this right, the first was a paper on transition pathways for the Midwest, which was published in January 2020, and that was followed by a paper on transition pathways for the Southeast, which was published in March. And now you have completed a paper on pathways for the entire U.S. under the leadership of Jim Williams of the University of San Francisco. And all of this research builds on a 2014 paper led by Williams titled Pathways to Deep Decarbonization in the United States, which was developed as a part of the Deep Decarbonization Pathways Project by a group of researchers, including research teams from 15 countries, which represent more than 70% of global greenhouse gas emissions, as well as E3, Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, and the Evolved Energy Research Team, of which you are a part. So this effort has really been underway for years and has involved a large number of researchers from all over the world, hasn't it? Yeah, it really has. The process was born out of some of that early work from the 2014 effort, and as a group, Jim Williams was really heading that effort. We were sitting down trying to think about a process and a modeling approach that sort of asked the bigger questions of how do we do this and what does it look like to transform the system? And that's really built into a number of ongoing efforts. So all the papers that you've run through, again, Jim's really been at the spearhead of that. And there's some really closely related work that we won't touch on here, but it relates to the current U.S. paper that's a forthcoming academic publication, but there's also been sort of international efforts that have sort of tried to utilize a similar process. So it's all coming back to these modeling questions about understanding the physical changes, and from there we can talk about cost and what it means from policy. Very cool. Okay, so today I want to dive into the how of this work and understand exactly what you're modeling, how you're modeling it, and what it all means. So let's start with the latest paper titled Achieving Carbon Neutrality in the United States, U.S. Deep Decarbonization Pathways Project, which rolls up the prior research on regional pathways for the U.S. and lays out the pathways for the U.S. as a whole. Now, this paper uses six scenarios to explore transitions that the U.S. could make to reduce CO2 emissions from using fossil fuels for energy and industrial processes and feedstocks in order to hit net zero carbon emissions by 2050. Those two sources, energy and industry, account for more than 80% of current U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. But we should note that it does not model the CO2 absorption of land, which is something that we did discuss with Jeff Sachs in the previous discussion, or the emissions of non-CO2 greenhouse gases, but it does incorporate values for those factors from other studies and finds that they will be needed as well in order to really bring the total greenhouse gas emissions to zero. So let's start with the top line findings. What did this paper conclude? Well, the big conclusion is that it's very much feasible to hit carbon neutrality by 2050. So our central case in this study describes a least cost system that has the least set of constraints on it. So really limited potential restrictions. And we find that that case at a net cost of 0.4% of GDP in 2050 is able to achieve carbon neutrality. So that 0.4% of GDP in 2050 over the reference case, it really represents some major shifts in terms of monetary flows. So we're spending $950 billion on efficiency, new supply for low carbon solutions, and we're saving $800 billion on fossil fuels that are no longer being burned. So our analysis really only looks at the energy costs for the total system for that transition. We're not accounting for things like co-benefits or economic benefits from the avoided damage of climate change or other potential impacts 
as well as potential health or environmental benefits. That total energy spending declines from about 5% of GDP for the energy system today to around 4% in 2050. And historically, we see sort of a range between 6% to 13%. So really bringing down costs, really a modest additional cost over sort of the business as usual case. Coal is eliminated. Natural gas falls by about three quarters. Oil use falls by 70%. And 90% of power generation is coming from renewables, principally wind and solar. And we see nuclear energy declining about two-thirds. That's really existing plants are retiring, but some stay online. And energy from biomass is increasing somewhat, where geothermal and hydro really don't change that much from today. I think we'll talk about a little bit more detail why that is. And really, in the end, we see that all CO2 emissions that remain in the system are from fossil fuels, and those need to be capture or offset to hit that carbon-neutral goal. So it's about shifting the system away from burning fuels because it's really challenging to decarbonize towards electricity. And electricity is meeting 60% of final energy demand by 2050. And the remainder comes from sort of the hard to decarbonize sectors. So there's some biomass, some hydrogen and synthetic fuels that are used to address those uses. Gotcha. You know, before we proceed, I wonder if you could just take a quick little diversion here and explain what you mean by a least constrained modeling strategy. Sure. So I think it might be helpful to give some context about the set of scenarios that we looked at for this analysis. So we can call this the central case or this all options case. That's really the case where we say, let's run the system and see what's cheapest to include. So new nuclear is available, things like CCS, comparatively optimistic assumptions about renewable potentials. The other important piece is biomass. So Biomass, there's a lot of uncertainty about how much there might be in the future, but in this case, we're taking a conservative but not overly conservative assumption around that. So some of the other scenarios we consider are things like limited land. So what if there's a lot less biomass supply? What if the land area for onshore wind and utility-scale solar is roughly half of what it would be? So that's sort of the contrast to say that limited land case has constraints, whereas our central case does not have those constraints. We do similar things on terms of the demand side. So there's a scenario that looks at what if the demand side can't transform and electrify as quickly as we assume in our central case. Those are sort of the two key pieces, and we can discuss in more detail some of the other scenarios we looked at for the study. One thing about this modeling work that I think is a little different from the usual kind of macro energy modeling that we often see like this is is its approach. Instead of the typical method where we might be trying to understand the effect of a certain strategy or policy, like a carbon tax, for instance, and projecting that forward to see what effect it would have, you're actually taking the opposite approach here called backcasting. You start with the target you want to achieve, in this case, net zero carbon emissions in the U.S. by 2050 and then work back from that to figure out how it can be achieved. So what are some of the insights we can gain from this backcasting approach? That's a great summary, Chris. Maybe just to add to that before I talk a little bit about insights from the backcasting approach, I think at its core, backcasting is about trying to understand what's entailed in the physical transformation. So the legacy of this work is in that discussion about feeling like that's the analysis that's needed, not necessarily understanding what does a carbon tax do on the margin or what do other approaches do sort of in the short term and in the macroeconomic system, but really understanding how many more widgets do we need and how quickly do they need to be deployed if you don't want to do early retirement. So that context of the questions we're trying to answer really sets up the insights that come from backcasting. 
So one of the things we think a lot about is stock turnover. So sort of one of our modeling principles is that we don't do early retirement of any resources except for potentially in an electricity supply. So for things like light duty vehicles or industrial boilers, we really need to understand how long do those resources typically stay online. And that means if it's a 15-year turnover rate for something like a furnace, or maybe it's a 30-year turnover rate for something like an industrial boiler. That way we know how many bites at the apple we get, and that helps sort of contextualize what does policy need to do and where should we be worried about moving really quickly because we don't get very many bites at the apple versus otherwise. So one of the key pieces there is sort of what interventions do you need to enable that stock turnover? And then just the other piece is really helping to contextualize the scale of the challenge. So we've already talked about the high-level findings from our central case, that 90% went in solar, and there's significant load growth on that system because we have so much electrification. So this sets up utilities that see that finding say, oh, the problems we need to be thinking about in the future maybe don't fit with the conversations we've been having. It's about how do we deal with a system that has major growth and load from electrification and a system that has really sort of different reliability challenges related to this high levels of wind and solar. And I think just the final piece to add there is I think there's also really useful insights and sort of follow-on discussions that come out of the backcasting approach about the implications for policy. So, you know, this sort of traditional policy approach with traditional modeling tools is we ask the question of what would this policy do? Maybe we get our arms around that and with luck the policy passes and then there's sort of an expectation in the future someone will reconcile what we did today with what's needed in the long term. Whereas this approach is centered around this long term question. And then from there we start asking questions about what are the policies that can do this as well as what are some of the benchmarks we need to be watching to understand how well our policy is performing. So coming back to that example of light duty vehicles, if we have policy to encourage electrification, our analysis gives you rough ideas of what fraction of sales each year need to come from electric light duty vehicles to hit the targets we're aiming for. And then you can ask questions like, is this policy performing the way that we thought? If not, what assumptions do we need to revisit and what things do we need to restructure? Interesting. So I guess I would maybe just summarize all that complexity by saying, this strategy of backcasting really helps you make sure that you're coming up with a realistic pathway. Exactly. It's about making sure we don't run into dead ends or avenues that are going to lead us to a large amount of stranded cost. So it's how do we actually have a pathway that we can be confident will lead to the transformation we want. And it also helps you maybe avoid hypothetical investments in technologies that may not work or that may not pan out, right? Yeah, that's very much part of it. And over the course of the work, we've already seen some evolution there. So, you know, when we first sat down working on this in 2014, there were lots of question marks about a range of technologies. And really just in the last six years, we've seen a lot more confidence and certainty around some answers, whereas other spaces, there's still questions. And that also sort of dovetails with the policy approach you want. So where we have high certainty about what looks to be the answer, like high renewables, that's just a different policy than in a space where you really still want to market for lots of ideas and technologies to flourish and compete. And we'll see sort of which is the most effective as time unfolds. Interesting. Well, we should probably take a moment here to point out some of the key constraints that are used in the modeling, because I think they're actually very conservative. 
The carbon neutral and carbon negative scenarios were required to meet the same demand for energy services for daily life and industrial production as the business as usual reference case from the EIA's annual energy outlook and used its assumptions for population, for GDP, and industrial production. So that's very much nothing changes in the world except for the energy system, right? Kind of a view. And the modeling only allows technologies that are commercial today or that have been demonstrated at large pilot scale today. So in effect, I think that really sets a pretty high bar because in reality, I would expect a number of those things to change over the next 30 years. For example, I would expect probably lower population growth than EIA projects and considerably lower demand for energy services and industrial production as a result of a slowing economy. And I would have said that before we had the added effects of the pandemic. So would you agree? I definitely would agree. I'm so glad you started with the history because I feel like a lot's coming back to sort of these early conversations. So, yeah. and thinking through the methodological approach, we felt like we needed to be extremely conservative because this was really a different approach than what a lot of the large-scale energy modeling had been doing. So it's all the things you talked about in terms of sort of energy demand, we assume remains at a high level. But the other piece there is also that there's no early retirement. That's a big one for us because mm-hmm. a lot of the changes really do involve new technologies going out. So things displacing sort of the conventional investment decision. So we needed to make sure that we're clear on the timing as well as not forcing anything off early because that's a really expensive proposition. And those are really foundational for us to be able to say that we're producing pathways that are feasible. So it's technology that we can reasonably expect to exist We can look at sensitivities to talk about what if it has different costs than we're assuming initially, but it's things that we can expect to be there and really at sort of a comparable level of energy demand as we have today, even with GDP and population growing at EIA rates. Right. So there's no heroic assumptions here, right? We're not requiring the world to radically change in terms of its character or composition or growth rates or people's behaviors or anything like that. We're just basically leaving all that alone and saying, how could we change the energy system? Yeah, I think there's no heroic assumptions about sort of how lifestyles are, what happens with GDP. And the goal of that is to really set up the discussion based on the results we find. So one of the things that folks may argue is a heroic assumption is the potential land use impacts of the scale of renewables we're talking about. Hmm. We do recognize that there are difficult questions and conversations to be had about that. But it does set up sort of the policy and societal discussions and decision making around we can go this path and we can achieve carbon neutrality doing this, recognizing that there are impacts, but there may be other paths that involve sort of less intensive energy consumption per capita that set up different futures. Gotcha. You know, it's also worth noting here that the scenarios were modeled using two sophisticated analysis tools, one called Energy Pathways and one called RIO, which do very detailed sectoral, temporal, and geographic modeling to ensure that the results are realistic. For example, they can ensure that we're expecting reasonable things in terms of the development of infrastructure and the hourly resolution of balancing on the electricity system. So this isn't just a big gross macro model, but rather a highly detailed model that can capture the step-by-step progressions that are needed to implement the energy transition. So in addition to the central scenarios we just described, the model considered five other scenarios. Can you briefly describe those? Sure. Let me just add a little bit more about modeling and I'll move to the scenarios. So again, 
for the large-scale energy models that exist today, many of them were developed decades before, and sort of the pressing questions at the time were different than the pressing questions we face trying to do deep decarbonization. And so the models really have been purposed, built, and developed with an eye towards that, and particularly an eye towards recognizing the electricity sector is really going to be the nexus of decarbonization. And so the questions we need to be able to answer about the electricity sector and how that may couple more tightly with other sectors really require this level of sort of hourly granularity on operations and reliability. And the other piece of that is really understanding how renewables operate on a system that has levels that we haven't really seen on any system in the world, maybe some small island systems. So that all of that has sort of gone into making models that were suited to answer these questions and recognizing the gaps for models that were really built to answer different questions. Mm, That's a great clarification. Yeah. So in terms of scenarios, yeah, so we ran a few additional scenarios beyond the central scenario. So the limited land scenario, which we touched on briefly. So that scenario is assuming what if there's just constraints for whatever reasons about the amount of biomass or land-based utility scale renewables. So it's half the level of biomass supply as compared to the central case and half the amount of onshore wind and utility scale solar as compared to the central case. Hmm. And the limited availability of those resources ends up requiring more offshore wind as well as potentially nuclear and more sequestered carbon to hit the same target. We've also got a scenario around delayed electrification. So broadly, that scenario sort of assumes that what if all of our electrification targets get pushed back by 15 years? So this leaves more fuel in the system, and that really necessitates more electric fuels, more biomass, more land, more carbon sequestration to offset emissions from those fuels. There's a low demand scenario. So this is the one scenario that asks the question, what if energy service demand does change into the future? So what if it's reduced by 20 to 40% below AEO levels? And that's really reflecting what if there's pretty significant lifestyle changes and higher conservation. So that scenario results in less energy need, less infrastructure, less cost, less land, and less sequestered carbon. There's a scenario that's tackling the 100% renewable energy scenario. So that's no fossil fuel use, including feedstocks for industrial uses. And in that scenario, we're actually, rather than setting a carbon constraint of net zero by 2050, we set the energy mix constraint. And so that results in a system that's net negative 350 million metric tons of CO2 in 2050. And that requires significantly more electricity, as well as synthetic fuels derived from electricity and more biomass and more land. Mm -hmm. And then the final scenario sort of fits with a 350 ppm by 2100 model, and that's a net negative scenario. So it's the equivalent of the central case, but rather than net zero, we're going to negative 500 million metric tons by 2050. So that relies more heavily on net negative emissions technologies, and there's more carbon sequestration. So what would you say the purpose of these different kinds of scenarios is? Is it just to be sort of a sensitivity analysis of a sort to just sort of bracket like the full range of futures that we might be dealing with here? Or are you really just kind of putting all of them out there neutrally to see which one emerges as the most likely or something of that sort? So it's it's sort of a mix of the two. So thank you for asking that follow-on question. A big thing here is both robustness and sort of exploring uncertainties. So the limited land and the delayed electrification are really trying to tackle that uncertainty piece. So trying to understand how much does the lease cost portfolio change if the future for some of our key assumptions looks really different than in the central case. 
So there's really instructive pieces about what's common in the solution set for those answers, what are you still depending on heavily, which really can help inform what's important and potentially what do we need to be focused on in terms of broader scale deployment and making sure that that goes well. But also just in terms of what policies can we have certainty around that this is part of the answer versus areas where there's less certainty and policies should reflect that we need to make sure different alternatives are competing head to head. I think the other piece there is just recognizing some of the conversations that have been having about what does a policy look like? What sort of really high renewable systems are possible? Could you run a system that's just wind, water, and solar, specifically with our 100% renewable primary energy case? And those are, again, in part to help inform sort of what is a robust answer? What do we see across all scenarios? But I think also to try to seed the conversation about there are choices about which pathway we want to walk down, and there are trade-offs with each. And the breadth of scenarios is really to help motivate what are actually the trade-offs and the choices we we're making, the sort of focus policy and decision-making around the path we want to walk on. Something I found really interesting about these six scenarios, I mean, just considering the total breadth of futures that they imagine, is that solar and wind provide over 90% of electricity generation in all of them, except for the limited land scenario in which it provides only 81%. I mean, that is quite a robust result. It is, and it's been robust really across the studies we've been doing in the last couple of years. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. The sole carbon capture project on a coal-fired power plant in the U.S. and the largest post-combustion carbon capture project in the world has ceased operation because the buyer of the captured CO2, an oil producer, can't afford to continue using it under today's low oil prices. 
Since January 2017, the $1 billion Petra Nova project captured carbon dioxide from one of the four coal units at NRG's W.A. Parrish Generating Station near Houston, Texas, and delivered it through an 81-mile pipeline to the West Ranch oil field, where the CO2 was used to boost oil extraction in a process known as enhanced oil recovery. So the CO2 was not completely sequestered, but rather used to increase the production of oil, which leads to more CO2 when it's burned. But the Petronova plant was shut down on May 1, 2020, after failing to operate for one out of every three days over the past three years, and forcing NRG to record an impairment loss of $101 million on the project. According to NRG, the project needed oil prices to average $75 a barrel for the decade from 2018 through 2027 in order to be financially viable, but U.S. oil prices have not been at that level since 2014. The Petronova project was widely hailed as a flagship carbon capture project that would represent a life extension for the dying U.S. coal industry, but in reality it captured just 7% of the power plant's emissions when it was operating, and burned up a $190 million grant from the Department of Energy, and now the power plant just operates without capturing any of its emissions. Longtime listeners will no doubt recall that we reviewed a few other high-profile carbon capture flameouts in episodes 62 and 107, and people wonder why I'm skeptical about carbon capture projects. Item 2. The world's biggest battery storage system is now in operation in California. Commencing operations with an initial tranche of 62.5 megawatts and 62.5 megawatt hours of storage on June 9th, the gateway... Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.